Give the Lord a hand this morning. All right. Ashley, if you want to come up, we're going to have you read our scripture for us this morning. Everybody better at your house now? Yeah. <laughs> Finally, it ripped through the house like nobody's business. I hope there's lots of hard names and locations in this scripture today. I think you're good. We're, okay. All right. So y'all follow along on the screen as Ash, Ashley reads God's word for us. Okay. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, and that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, if, I have now, if now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die, in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now therefore let, my, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered and said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, threshing floor of Atad which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there. With a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham brought, bought with the field of, from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived a hundred and ten years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, and the children also of Maker the son of Manasseh were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being a hundred and ten years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. I'm thankful for a church that believes it is your word and it is infallible. We're thankful that you have spoken to mankind and you've revealed yourself through it. So, Father, I pray that we would honor your word this morning by paying attention to it. And, Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide. Help, it, help us as we behold your glory that we would be conformed to the image of your Son, that we would leave here and go home to our families and our communities and our neighbors and our, our workplaces representing Christ better than we have before. We thank you for loving us and teaching us, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Today's chapter is about two funerals. Jacob dies, and as you saw at the end, Joseph dies. Uh, when I was uh, 25 years old, I got a phone call late at night that woke me up, and it was my one of my older brothers, Jerry. And Jerry 
said, hey, Gary, I need to tell you, dad passed away tonight of a heart attack. And my dad was, was 63. Was, it was unexpected. And uh, I don't know what I felt at the time. <laughs> In fact, I think it would probably be accurate to say I felt nothing. <laughs> and I uh, hung up the phone and I, my wife said, well, what was that about? And I, and I told her, I said, my, my dad passed away of a heart attack. And she said, oh, I'm so sorry, Gary. I'm like, and I, I'm embarrassed that I didn't really feel much. My dad and I didn't have a great relationship. I was number seven and unexpected and pretty much treated that way. <laughs> my parents didn't have much time for me. Um, I, I, uh, I played uh, varsity basketball and varsity soccer. My dad never came to a single game. It didn't even phase me at the time. I didn't think about it. I thought that's, that's what my parents do. And then when I, it, you know when it hit me? When I became a dad. And my first son, my son had his first baseball game. And I was like, I cannot wait. And like, you know, I'm going to reschedule heaven and earth to make all those games. In fact, later on, I became the, my kids' coaches. It just, and it just, it hit me like into my second, third child. I'm like, this is what dads do. Where, where was my dad? And like I said, I didn't grow up traumatized. I'm, I don't need therapy for it. I don't think so. I'm not bitter, I don't think. But I, I look at, when I read passages like this, especially when I read about Joseph, and this is the eighth time it says Joseph wept. And of course, what does that remind me of? I, I fast forward to the New Testament. Who wept? Jesus wept. In fact, I, I just, I, you can't help but connect the two as you've seen as we do all throughout Genesis that everything points to Jesus. And so this, this story right here also points to Christ as we'll see. But how do you handle death? How do you handle that? I hope that we are not like I was at age 26, just kind of calloused. But that we can, because Joseph had every reason to be like, good riddance, Jacob, you jerk. Because Jacob was not a good dad. He was not. He had favorites. Of course, Joseph was the favorite. Maybe that's why he went more. I don't know. But I don't think Joseph was that selfish. I, I think there's a whole lot more going on in here. So we're going to divide Genesis chapter 50 up into a few categories. First of all, Joseph honors his father. And then Joseph buries his father. The manipulation and forgiveness and Joseph's last days. And we're going to spend the majority of our time under manipulation and forgiveness, as you will see. So Jacob finished commanding his sons. And this is the end of chapter 49, just to give it context. And Jacob drew up his feet. What, what position do we call this? This is the fetal position. This is what people commonly do when they die. This is how I sleep every night, so maybe I'm preparing. I don't know. But it says that he breathed his last he died, and then he was gathered to his people. That is not a reference to burial. His burial wouldn't take place till much later. This means that Joseph, Jacob did what? He went to, we would call it heaven. To be more specific, this would be to Abraham's side. Um, that's what gathered to his people means. He went to eternity. He was a believer in Christ. So there's a common question that we, I need to educate you on this morning. Most of you know this already, I think, but it's a good refresher to get our theology straight. Where did Old Testament saints go when they died? Let me show you what the scripture says. Luke 16, 22, Jesus told this story. And people will often call this mistakenly a parable. It's not. When Jesus gives parable, he doesn't give names. In this one, he gives names and specifics. I believe this is an actual event that only Jesus could know because no one knows what happens beyond the grave but, but him. And so the poor, it says the poor man, his name is Lazarus, as we know from the previous verse, died and was carried by the angels to where? Abraham's side. He wasn't carried to heaven. He was carried to Abraham's side. The rich man also died. And it's in this story, the rich man is not given a name because he had a name on earth, but because he, had no, he was not rich towards God, eternally he did not have a name. And, that, and so it goes on to say that in Hades, everybody say Hades? In Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. So there is a place prior to the resurrection of Christ called Hades, and it has two sides. There is Abraham's side, and then there's a side of torment. And these two sides can see each other. At least they could. Now, so the poor man who knew Christ as Savior is at Abraham's side. The rich man who all he trusted in was his wealth was in suffering on the other side. Ephesians talks about when Christ rose from the dead, 
that when Jesus ascended on high, he led a host of captives. Who was that? All the Old Testament saints who were on Abraham's side. He went, and see, a lot of people teach really bad theology that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, when he died, he went to hell and suffered more. That is blasphemy. That is not true at all. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. He didn't have to pay any more than what he already paid on the cross. Where he went to was down to Abraham's side, or Abraham's bosom, as King James English says, and he celebrated with the believers down there, and he took all those captives, and that's not captives in a bad way, in a temporary holding spot, and he took them to heaven from that. And that's, it says, so what else does it mean that he had des- he that descended into the lower regions of the earth? That's what it's talking about. And that's what, that's what Paul has explained to us. Revelation talks about this Hades a little more. And, and so Hades is now only a place for the lost who are dead. And they are suffering. They are suffering in spirit only because their bodies are where? Still in the grave. That reunion will take place later at the resurrection of the dead. There's two resurrections. The resurrection that you, hopefully you as a believer, will experience when Christ comes again. And then at the great white throne, there's a resurrection of the dead. Daniel talks about the two different resurrections. Revelation chapter 20 says, And the sea gave up all the dead who were in it, and death and the grave, or the, pl- the temporary holding place, gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged. Now watch this carefully. Each of them, according to what they had done. King James says, according to their works. You say, well, wait a minute, I thought we weren't saved by works. Absolutely, you're not. All these people are lost. And so therefore, because they rejected the work of Christ, they're saying, look at me, God, I'm good enough. And God says, okay, you think so? Let's judge your works. And guess what? What percentage of these people go to hell? 100%. Because they said, hey, look what I've done. And he said, yeah, yeah, let's look what you've done. Yeah, remember when you lied here and you stole here? And even the good things you said you did, you did them for just impress people, just impress me. You did it for selfish reasons. And it goes on and says, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Someone once said, if you're born once, you will die twice. If you're born twice, you only die once. See, we all have a physical birth. We should all have a spiritual birth. When you're born again, you only die once. But here, all these people who've been suffering, think about the rich man who's been in Hades all this time. And then he's resurrected at the great white throne of, of Christ. And he's judged based on his works. And now his body and his soul reunite to be cast in hell again to stay there forever. Say, Gary, I don't, I don't like when you preach on hell. I, I don't like it either. It's not what I, I just, I'm not a hellfire and brimstone preacher, but it's Bible. We cannot ignore this. And like I told you before, for every one time Jesus preached on heaven, he pro- spoke five times on hell because he does not want you to go there, and neither do I. It goes on to say, if any man's name was not written, found written in the book of life, you see, the saved, where are they written? The book of life. Not, they're not judged based on the works. They're judged based on the work of Christ, which puts their name in the book of life. And on all these people, their name wasn't written there. So again, they're cast into the lake of fire. So that's where uh, Jacob went. He went to Abraham's side. Now, where's Jacob? He is in heaven, okay? which is not really something in clouds with angel wings and harps. That's a really poor picture of heaven, and that's a boring place that I wouldn't want to go to either. But it's another dimension that is, in, that is I won't even say in the future, because God is timeless. I, get, I digress. Then Joseph fell on his father's face. Some translations say he, he leaned over. No, he, he literally like got in the bed with his dad and was face to face with his dad. That kind of tears me up to think of someone loving someone that much that he's like a little boy saying, Daddy, Daddy, I love you. Don't go, don't go. And it says, and he wept. It didn't say he cried. He wept. Weeping is physical and verbal. I mean, you hear people weeping. And again, this is several times in the Bible talks about him weeping. It's the third time recently he's wept a total of eight times, but it says, and he even kissed him. So he loved his dad. Now think about, man, Jacob was not a great dad. And, and he was very self-centered. But, but the Bible says, honor your father and mother. It's a command. And notice it doesn't say obey your father and mother in the Ten Commandments. It says honor, which includes obedience when you're 
in their house, but it is a lifelong commitment. When you're out of their house and you have your own family, you still honor mom. You still honor dad. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. This is super interesting because Jews didn't embalm. Now, they, remember what they did with the body of Jesus? They anointed the body. They showed respect to the body, but they didn't embalm it. Egyptians embalmed because they believed that that body passed on to the other side. And so you had to do as much as you could to preserve it so that they would, you know, get up and walk around on the other side. But Jews knew better. They knew the body would be corrupted, so they would just anoint it. But the question would be then, why is Joseph embalming? Because he knows it's going to be a while before his dad gets to back to the promised land. It's going to take more than days. It's going to take weeks and maybe a couple of months. So he lets them do what they can do, and they embalm the thing so the body can make the trek to, to be buried where Abraham and other uh, uh, the, the patriarchs are buried. So, and notice it says, so the physicians embalmed Israel. You've caught on to this pattern where sometimes God calls them Jacob, sometimes he calls them Israel. You know, just like um, Simon and Peter, Paul, Saul and Paul, the name change thing. When Jacob was acting in the flesh, he called him Jacob, you heel gripper, you trickster, you. And when he was walking in faith, he called him Israel. Well, now he's dead. Guess what? He's permanently Israel. He's permanently, he doesn't know no more ups and downs, no more failures, no more lies, no more manipulation. He's Israel. I, I, I'm looking forward to that day. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what new name God's going to give me, but I'm looking forward to one. No more Gary, <laughs> no more selfishness, no more stupidity, no more dumb mistakes. Just get to be who God wanted me to be, and you'll recognize me, but maybe I'll have a different name. Some people think you're given a new name in heaven. There's different ways of interpreting that. But anyway, 40 days were required for it. And I wonder if Moses is writing here, and he explains why. Like, don't read into this the whole 40 days. It's just because that's how long it takes to embalm. <laughs> I wonder if that's what Moses is saying. And he says, and the Egyptians wept for 70 days. Now, what's interesting is, in Egyptian culture, if any royalty, any part of Pharaoh or Pharaoh's family passed away, mourning was 72 days. So here's royalty minus two. It's like, Jacob, you're a hero, not because we like you, because the Egyptians didn't know Jacob. We think your son's amazing. He took us through 14 years, seven years of plenty when he managed everything. And then he, that's what got us through. Your son's the one that got us through seven years of famine, that not only did we not starve to death, we were able to feed the world. We were able to feed all the known, known world, the Middle East then, and your dad, your, Joseph's a hero, so therefore you're a hero. And so that's why he's given that respect. Sometimes it's who you know, isn't it? And when the days of the weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household. Notice this, people who the servants, who he speaks to first of Pharaoh, saying, if now I have found favor in your eyes, so he's passing this message to Pharaoh, wait a minute, if you found favor in his eyes, what's he been doing for Pharaoh all this time? He, I mean, Pharaoh, is, remember he said, I was like a father to Pharaoh? And the Pharaoh said, man, you're in charge of everything. You, you can just run the show. In fact, there was times that Pharaoh's like, so what should we do, Joseph? And Joseph's like, well, we should do this, this, and this. The reason this is happening is because this is not the same Pharaoh. This is a new Pharaoh. Um, let me, and I didn't have to figure this out on my own, uh, Dr. Charles Ayling, an Egyptologist. Aren't you glad that the Bible is confirmed by archaeology? Skeptics say, well, that's not true. There was no such thing as this Joseph story. And then archaeologists say, oh, guess what we found? The story of Joseph right here in the Bible. Look, it's in the Bible. And they're like, oh. And you never hear these archaeologists apologize for not, for not speaking up this. Anyway, this Egyptologist said, Joseph would have begun his work as a government official under Pharaoh Sennacherib II and served into the reign of Sennacherib III. So that the archaeology confirms that this is a new pharaoh, and there'll be a third pharaoh that Exodus starts off with who knew not J Joseph. And it was like all the bargaining, all the great treatment of Israel, it's out the window. They go from being cohabitors of the land to slaves really, really quick. He goes on to say that there's compelling, compelling evidence that numerous historical details from the Middle Kingdom of Egypt are accurately reflect, reflected in the biblical account of Joseph. Archaeologists didn't say that even 30 years ago. And now it's all, the Bible once again is confirmed. Exodus 1.8 says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt, here's the third one, who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. And you know what happened from there. 
We've seen this in our country. Things can get really rough and get there fast when a government has a new leader who doesn't know history or doesn't care about it. And all of a sudden, we, we were... Christianity was the norm. People went to church, and now it's like, you're a Christian? You're a hater? You're a bigot? You're a homophobe? And it's like how the, quickly the culture has changed. This is what Israel went through. You know, Joseph, you're a hero. Third Pharaoh, who's Joseph? Who are these people? Why are they even here? Why are they making so many babies, especially baby boys? Let's throw those babies in the river. Let's get rid of these people. Things change quickly. Joseph said, my father made me swear, so he's going to honor his word, I'm about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now therefore, let me please, he's, a, he's having to beg with this Pharaoh. He doesn't have the favor he had before. He's having to ask for favor. He's having to ask for this, this uh, trip to leave, to go up and bury my father. Then I, I will return. He's making a promise he'll return. And so this new Pharaoh answered, go up, bury your father. As he made you swear. Remember the previous Pharaoh had this lengthy conversation with Jacob. They seemed like they were buds and all that. This guy's like, yeah, go ahead and go. So that brings us to the next point. Joseph follows what his dad asked. He buries his father. So Joseph went up to bury his father. And he went up to, with all the servants of Pharaoh. So all the people, they remember Joseph. And so like Pharaoh's, you know, his White House is empty, if you will. I mean, it's like, where? Where did everybody go? They all went because they were loyal to Joseph all the elders of the household, all the elders of the land of Egypt. This is quite a procession. Here's an artist's re rendering of the procession for Jacob. So don't picture some small caravan. They estimated that the procession lasted for almost two miles. So imagine you're a Canaanite shepherd, and you're out there watching your sheep, and you're like, wow, what's that? Here comes a few Egyptians. Well, they keep coming, and they keep coming, and they keep coming. Like, what, are we being invaded? What's happening here? Like, no, that actually, those are funeral flags. Look at that. And so, you know how when you were a kid, parades were such a big deal. Well, this was like a once-in-a-lifetime parade. So the Canaanites and all these pagan people are gathering like, hey, hey, come on, look, look, look. And they're following along the road and they're just thoroughly impressed. Like, who was this guy? It was somebody seriously important that must have died here. <coughs> and so, so Joseph went up to bury his father and all these people. And notice that Pharaoh could have went and he didn't. This is further evidence that this is not the same Pharaoh. So it says all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household, all the, the wives, only their children, their flocks, and their herds. Now think about this. What level of trust do you have to have with the Egyptians to leave all your kids? All the aunts and uncles and everybody old enough to go went, and they literally left behind for a few months all their children and all their wealth. This is the kind of relationship that Joseph had with the Egyptians, that they could leave all that behind and have that level of trust. <clears throat> so they went out with chariots and with horsemen. This is a very great company. This is an extremely large parade that's happening here, for lack of a better word. So when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, first of all, this isn't some small threshing floor. This was like a community threshing floor. A threshing floor, for those who don't know, this is where at harvest time you'd bring all the grain and you would winnow it out. You'd separate the wheat from the chaff. You would let, you'd roll big stones over it to crush it, to turn it into flour. And so basically there was like a community threshing floor. There was a big open area where people were normally would gather for harvest. So, well, this is a good place for us to stop and make camp while the Egyptians stay there and the family goes on to finish the job. The word atad means thorns. This is the place of thorns. Some people try to connect this to uh, the, the thorns of Christ. I don't know if there's a, a hard, fast connection there, but maybe there is. Maybe this is a, a preface to that. I'm not sure. I don't want to preach that dogmatically if it's not a strong case. This is what, and with a very, very great and grievous lamentation, he made a mourning for his father seven days. And I think this is also a throwback to creation. God created the world full of life in seven days, and now Genesis is ending with seven days of death and mourning. See that the contrast. When the inhabitants of the land of the Canaanites saw this morning in this, at the threshing floor, uh, they said, wow, this grievous morning by the Egyptians. There, therefore, they, they renamed the place Abel Mizraim, which means the meadow of Egypt. In other words, the Egyptians came here. They made this a, a little campground here. We're just going to call it the Egyptian campground. And it's beyond the Jordan just for geography's sake. 
it's kind of like if you go to what used to be the World Trade Center, but now we call it what? Ground Zero. Because something so traumatic happened there that it just gets renamed. That's what it's named for. This is what happened here. They changed history by this funeral procession. And thus his sons did for him as he commanded. So not just Joseph, but all the brothers are doing exactly what their dad said. And again, many of these boys had good reason to disrespect their dad, to dishonor their dad. But they followed through. They did the right thing. And in the cave of the field, the Machpelah, uh, um, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought. Remember that story there where Abraham, they were wanting to give him the land. He's like, no, I'm going to buy it. And Abraham had made a serious investment there because Abraham believed in the resurrection. Abraham knew, with even, without a New Testament, that the resurrection of believers was going to happen. And he wanted all his family to be gathered together so they could also be resurrected together. And then we see there's some manipulation going on here. Manipulation and forgiveness. Thank you, Jimmy. You read my mind. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers. That must have been an interesting ride home. Remember, what did his brothers do to him? They sold him into slavery. That was after Reuben talked him out of, or Judah talked him out of killing him. They wanted to kill him. They sold them into slavery indirectly. They didn't get the money for it, but that's another story. Um, they, they've been really ugly to him his whole life, the first 17 years. And then to top it all off, they did that to him. And then there's several times it looks like they didn't trust him. And you'll even see that we'll get to a part where they still look like they don't trust him. But he's doing this. He's traveling with them. He's being gracious to them. He's being good to them. You need to know that information because the rest of the story hinges on it. So when Joseph's brothers saw... Now, this is one of two things. They didn't think, Dad's dead? What? <laughs> no, of course they know their dad's dead. So this is, either a, this is either a flashback to when they saw, or I think it's the word Hebrew word here, saw means when they considered. On the ride home, we're like, wow, dad's really gone. Life is going to be different now. Because remember, remember, this is a very heavily patriarchal society where even an old man still tells everybody what to do and how to do it, running the family business. But he's gone now. He's out of the picture and they're starting to think, hey, how is this going to change life? They're thinking about this on the way home. And they say, you know what? I wonder if Joseph's going to now hate us. What if he pays us back for all the evil that we did to him? And good for them that they're calling what they did evil. They didn't say, well, he, did, he had it coming. He was bragging like stupid little immature 17-year-old. They didn't, they didn't do all. They're like, no, we did evil. And maybe payback's coming. You know, they're, what they're going to do here is they're, they're going to lie. Um, they're going to tell... They're going to make up a story here. Um, how many of you like the show Andy Griffith <laughs> or remember his show? My kids love it. My kids like Andy Griffith and like at night. What's our favorite show to watch, Caitlin? Leave it to Beaver. We watch Leave it to Beaver because, I mean, you got to go back to 1950 to watch anything decent and not cussing. And Leave it to Beaver, the Cleavers actually go to church. Wow, imagine that. But um, if you like Andy Griffith, just be prepared. I'm going to ruin it for you. <laughs> okay. Um, maybe not so bad, but. You will never unsee this again. This is a fact. Every episode of the Andy Griffith Show, Andy lies. Every single episode. My kids know to watch for it now. So this episode right here, uh, Opie ha gets a nickel every day to buy milk when he goes to school. And every day when he's walking to school, there's a bully that stops him and takes his nickel because he threatens to beat him up. So then Opie starts asking everybody for nickels. And like, but didn't you get a nickel? And like, so one day Barney follows him, you know, to school, and it's funny to watch it. And uh, and he sees the whole bully thing, so he tells Andy, "Hey, this is what's happening." So Andy takes Opie fishing, and he's trying to figure out how he can talk to him about you got to stand up to this bully. And he gets the idea, and he makes up this whole lie about how when he was a kid he used to fish here, and a bully tried to take the fishing spot from him, but he punched him in the nose and didn't and made the bully go away. And so Opie gets, you know, gets in a fight with his other boy, and the, and the bullying ends. But Andy had to lie to do it. And you may say, well, it's okay sometimes to lie. Um, no, it's not. It's not. And this is what the brothers are going to do. They're going to lie in this situation. They're going to start manipulating things. And there's a lot of ways that we, as sinful human beings, we manipulate. We don't want to admit it, but we do. We will tell what we call a white lie, but it's for a good reason. Don't do that. Don't fall into that game. This is what the brothers are doing. We also will 
leave out important details that could persuade the decision to go our, our way. So we leave those things out conveniently. That's dishonesty by omission. It, it's also manipulation. We also exaggerate things to, to say, you know, one person can play with something, everybody's upset about this. Everybody? Who's everybody? Well, one person said, oh, one person now. You see how people do that? Or nobody wants to do this, Pastor. No, everybody's against it. Nobody, not one person, whatever. And we will exaggerate things to, to get our way. And it's wrong. It's just as dishonest, if not more so, than lying. First Peter 3.9 says, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Joseph is going to execute 1 Peter 3.9, and he hasn't even, this hasn't even been written yet. He's going to live it out perfectly. Romans 12.19 talks about this. Beloved, read the yellow with me. Never avenge yourselves. Someone talking smack about you? Man, get back on social media and tear them up, right? Isn't that what the world does? Is that what Christians do? Shouldn't be. We just say, sorry you feel that way. We walk away. We don't repay evil for evil. But who should we do? What should we do instead? Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. It belongs to me. So when you get revenge, you are taking something out of God's hands and say, I'm going to do it. And God says, I'll take care of it. I'll repay. Because if they did this much to you, guess what? I'm getting exactly there. You're going to do this. Or you might only be able to do this and be always frustrated. You never got them, get them back as much as they got you. Or they may be dead. And you can never get revenge on them. But God says, I'll take care of it. Let me be God. You be you. And I'll, I'll, I'll do my job. You do yours. You just trust me on this situation. So they sent, here's what the brother's doing to manipulate things. They sent a message. They sent a letter. They don't even want to talk to him in person. They don't have the guts to do that. And they said, your father gave this command before he died. There's no record in the Bible or in history that he ever gave this command. They totally fabricated. And they said, tell Joseph, after I'm dead, to, I'm inserting that, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin. And again, they're naming it what it is, which is good, because they did you evil. And now, please forgive. Please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. They're playing the Jesus card. They're saying, for religious reasons, be sure to forgive these brothers. Don't take out any revenge on them. And so they're totally making up this story. They're lying to save themselves. And what's Joseph's reaction? He just balls. He's like, I can't believe this. And this is the eighth time that, that Joseph wept, the scripture tells us. And, and I want to look at this carefully. Why? Why did Joseph weep? And not, not just a few tears, not just got misty, not just felt sad. This devastated Joseph. Why? Well, was it because <laughs> he's thinking, all I've done for you guys, I brought you down here, I gave you land, I put you in charge of Pharaoh's cattle, I have fed you, I've done everything for you after all you did for me. I could have made you slaves like you did to me, but I forgave all that. This has been going on for decades of good treatment. And now you're going to say, oh, I wonder if he's going to repay us now that dad's dead. Like, as in, everything I've done for you is fake. That's what you're saying. I only did it because dad was alive. And he's gone, okay, here we go. Let's get the revenge now. And, and, and they still doubt it. That, that very well could be part of it. But I, I think there's another reason that maybe overrides this one. Was it because that his heart broke for them because they still don't understand God's grace? I think that's what's happening here. I think both are coexisting, but this, I think, is the bigger reason. I think Joseph's broken heart, like, my brothers are so far from God. They don't even see grace when it's right under their nose. Christina Joy Holmes wrote this poem. I asked the Lord to give me love, his love for souls in sin. Instead, he gave me weeping eyes, a broken heart within. I asked him why he gave me tears. He took me back in time to when my Savior lived on earth when he was in his prime. I saw him go to where his friend was lying in a grave, and his sisters and their friend was grieved what love to them he gave. You see my Savior standing there was also grieved that day. He wept great heaving tears and sobs till those who saw what could say, Behold, we see now how he loved. His tears revealed his heart. His love was evident through tears. 
I saw God's point in part. And then he took me to the day the people hailed their king. While Jesus enters to their cheers, the children run and sing. But when he saw Jerusalem stretched out before his eye, his soul was moved with them with grief for them. It moved his heart to cry. Oh, as I read those solemn words, I feel that they are sweet, for in them I behold his love, so perfect and complete. To one more place he took me now. At midnight I beheld the Son of God bowed down with grief in deepest sorrow held. I heard his weeping strong and deep, but through it I discerned he prayed for me. It melted me. His love for me, I learned. We can learn a lot about the tears of Joseph and the tears of Jesus. May we be people who weep tears of joy, tears for the lost, tears for those who are deceased. I think in our culture right now, we're just used to the sitcom that in 30 minutes, all the world's problems are solved. And that's not life. We need to be people who are willing to spend time in weeping and in mourning. The Bible commands us to weep with those who weep. Joseph and Jesus set an amazing, amazing example. In verse 18, it says his brothers also came and fell down before him. Said They're like, oh, it didn't work. He's, he's, he's so upset now, he's crying. So, hey, we'll be your slaves. Now they're bargaining. And this reminds me of, of the prodigal son. Prodigal son went away. He spent all his father's inheritance. And then he's face down in pig slop. It stinks. He stinks. Life stinks. He's like, my father's servants live better than I do. That's what I'll do. I'll go home and I'll ask my father, just make me one of your servants. I am not worthy to be your son. And that sounds very repentant, and it is, but it's only partial because once again, he does not understand grace. He can't pay back God back. It's like, well, God, if you, if you take me back, I promise I'll serve you forever. I'll go in the ministry. I'll go to Africa or whatever. I'll, and you're bargaining with God. And God's like, hey, you're my son. Come here. And so this is what they're doing. They're saying, we'll just be your slaves, trying to earn grace when you can't. But Joseph said to them, don't fear. Am I in the place of God? This is probably one of the deepest rhetorical questions in all of the Bible. Am I in the place of God? You see, sin is when, God, when man takes God's place. Sacrifice is when God takes man's place. And what we're always doing as human beings, we're trying to take God's place. We're going to manage our 401k. We're going to get our kids. We're going to send a resume. We're going to do all this stuff. We're going to make everything happen the way we want it to happen. Oh, yeah, God, bless my plan. God's like, what plan? Forget your plan. I'm the king of the universe. You should be coming to me with a blank sheet of paper saying, here, God, tell me what to do. That's what we should be doing. But we're sinners, and we, we think that we're God. And Joseph has the, the humility to say, what, oh, my God? He could have gotten the big head. He's been the, the ruler of the most powerful empire on the planet. He literally saved the world, which is a picture of Christ. He could have been like, yeah, I am God. I should do this. Even Joseph's like, no, I'm not in the place of God. I'm just a tool used in God's hand. When we choose to hold a grudge, we're playing God. And Joseph's like, I, I can't do that. How can I hold a grudge against you? I, am I God? Is there someone that's hurt you? Is there someone that every time their name comes up, you just ugh, cringe? Someone that you're bitter against? Let it go. Christ died for you and Christ died for them. You, aren't you thankful he paid for all your sins? Aren't you thankful he paid for all theirs? If he paid for all theirs, how can you make them pay? You can't. You're, you can't make someone pay for the same bill twice. Christ paid the bill. It's, it is finished. When we, we're also playing God when we try to get revenge. That's when we're playing God. When we hit back, when we talk back, when we treat someone, we give them the cold shoulder. Sometimes we'll say, oh, I don't do all that. I'm just kind of pulling back to neutral. Is that what the Bible says to do with your enemies? Be neutral with your enemies. No, Jesus tell, calls us to, to much more. When we will not forgive, we're playing God. That, that's the hard truth of it. He says, as for you, you know, as far as how this applies to you guys, yeah, you meant it for evil. He doesn't let them off the hook. 
He doesn't say, oh, no, no, forget about it. No big deal. It was nothing. nothing. You want to make a buck. I understand. <laughs> I was just a little brother. Yeah, no, no big deal. No, he's like, what you did against me was evil. But it's okay. It's forgiven. You see, when you see God's sovereignty, it doesn't erase or ignore personal responsibility. He's like, yes, you did evil. But God took that evil and used it for good. And so how can I hold a grudge? I trust God and his sovereignty. Forgiveness also does not erase or ignore personal responsibility for it. So sovereignty doesn't erase personal responsibility. Forgiveness, because you forgive somebody, doesn't mean you do have to whitewash what they did. You can forgive it, but it doesn't mean it was okay. Jesus, as always, the great teacher strikes the balance for us. Jesus said to the woman taken adultery, she was caught in the very act of adultery. And he says, okay, whoever's here without stone, you go and cast the first stone. That, that was a big bluff, wasn't it? What if someone went, oh man, that backfired. But Jesus knew it wouldn't. And he says, and so one by one, they dropped the stones and walked away. And he said, hey, and she's down, cowering, eyes closed, thinking any minute I'm fixing to get crushed here. And he says, hey, woman, where, where, where are your accusers? She looks up and she said, there are none. And he says, neither do I condemn you. And then he says, go on from now on and sin no more. He didn't say, hey, you, you be you. You were just doing whatever you want to do. Who am I to judge? He said, no, what you were doing was sin. But don't do it anymore. You see, that's the balance. We live in a culture that says, don't judge anybody. Don't judge their lifestyle. Don't ever just, this, it's all fine. Everybody has a choice. I'm, as long as I'm not hurting anybody, it's their lifestyle, do whatever you want. And who are you to judge? No, the Bible makes it very clear. Joseph makes it very clear. Jesus makes it very clear. Sin is sin, but we can forgive it. But you can't be forgiven unless you acknowledge it for what it is. That's why we have to preach against sin. We have to preach on these things because it's through the conviction of the sin that the Holy Spirit creates the need for salvation. That the hardest thing about getting someone saved is you have to get them lost first. And once they realize, wow, I am lost. Wow, I do deserve hell. Wow, eternity is long. But Jesus paid it all. I, I, I want to give my life to him. That's how we do that. So being a community of mercy and forgiveness as we are here and try to strive to be at Revolution Church, it does not mean that we do not call sin what it is. Jesus, we, you hear this phrase all the time. And it's true, but it's not the whole truth. Jesus loves you just the way you are. Now, we can interpret that the way we want to if we're not careful, but we need to realize that the balance of it is he loves you too much to leave you that way. Anybody and everybody can walk through these doors. We welcome everybody. We've had people from all different lifestyles come here, and they've all said, wow, this is a friendly, loving church. So it doesn't matter. Tattoos, no tattoos, old, young, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, gay, straight, trans, whatever. They've all been here, and they've all walked out feeling loved. And that's, praise God, for you being that way. But we also know that does not mean I'm going to change my message. I remember just a few years ago when a lesbian couple left here with their kids, and then they called me, and actually I called them, and I said, hey, thanks for being our guest this morning. I hope you had a great time. I said, yes, your church is very friendly and loving. We really appreciate it. Our kids had a great time in the children's ministry. And they said, we had a question for you, Pastor. Is your church LGBT friendly? I said, if friendly means what you just experienced this morning, yes, we are. If friendly means we condone your lifestyle, no, we don't. But we got a lot of lifestyles in our church that we're all struggling. We got recovering alcoholics. We have people recovering from addiction. We have people who are going through divorce, bankruptcy. All got, we're all struggling, and we're struggling together to be more like Christ. So, but that was not what they wanted to hear. And I'm not changing on that because God's word is clear that we need to get people. I am a sinner saved by grace. We all need to come to that realization, just as, as many of you have. So he says, hey, don't fear. I will provide. I'm going to take care of your kids. I'm going to take care of you. And notice what he's doing. I'll provide. I'll comfort. And he spoke kindly. This is a great template for how to show true forgiveness. If you've truly forgiven for them, forgiven someone, you're providing for them, you're comforting them, and you're speaking nicely to them. There is no neutral gear in forgiveness. Jesus makes it clear. Love your enemies. Do good acts of kindness to them that hate you. Bless those who are talking smack against you, the Gary translation, and pray for those who abuse you. Wow, that's rough. That's hard. But that's the gospel. 
In 2006, uh, this married man, father of one, but addicted to pornography, went into an Amish community and locked the doors behind him in the Amish school, sent out all the boys, kept the girls, had very perverted plans for them, but the police caught on to his plans. They surrounded the building, and he shot nine of them, killed five. The Amish had every reason to be outraged. They had done nothing wrong. They're in this peaceful, quiet community trying to stay away from the world. He went into their place he, and with his perverted plans, and he ended up killing them instead. That week, the Amish lined up and brought food and money to the widow of the man that killed their girls. They attended the funeral. They donated tens of thousands of dollars to help pay for the funeral and take care of their child and the widow because of the gospel. That, that's Christianity in action right there. Joseph honored his fathers. He buried his fathers as a command. Even though his brothers manipulated, he forgave. And then I will look quickly at his last days. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. I'm not really sure why. Um, Joseph entered the service of Pharaoh at age 30. Who else started their ministry at age 30? Jesus, right? Okay. Um, he remained there for seven years of plenty, two years into the famine before revealing himself to his brothers. Okay, I'm doing a little history review here. He was 39 when his family moved to Egypt. Jacob was 130 when he made the move. Jacob dies at 147. Therefore, Joseph was 56 when his father died, when all this happened. Then Joseph dies at 110, 54 years later. So they're there in Egypt for a long time. But the question is, why? Why did they stay so long and not return to the promised land? Remember, Jacob was like so much, bury me there. Get me back there as soon as possible. And Joseph doesn't have that. I don't know why. I think maybe Joseph knows Abraham's prophecy that for 400 years they'd be enslaved. So he's just rolling with it. I'm not, so I'm not questioning his judgment. Joseph only lives 110, which compared to the other patriarchs is not much. Remember, people at that time lived much longer than we do today, before the flood even longer, 800, 900. And I think his life was cut short um, like somebody else. He's a picture of Jesus. Jesus' life was cut short. When most people in that day lived 40s, 50s, and 60s, 60s was really high in biblical times. Jesus died at 33. I think it's another picture of Christ. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to a third generation, so great-grandsons that he lived to see. Two of them he adopted into his inheritance. And he said, then he knew he was about to die. He said, but, once again, recognizing God's sovereignty, God will visit you and bring you up. Um, it's going to be a few hundred years, but it's going to happen. Out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and will carry your bones from here. And, and of course, that's fulfilled in Exodus, that they actually carried out the bones of Joseph. So Joseph died, and they embalmed him, because again, it's going to be there. His body needs to remain intact for a few hundred years. And then they put him in a coffin. Genesis begins with a man fully alive in a beautiful garden. And because of sin, Genesis ends with a dead man in a coffin in an Egyptian de desert. Look at the contrast as we finish the book of Genesis today. The one event in Hebrews that recalls Joseph is, is not his faithfulness in slavery. That was pretty cool. Okay? Didn't complain about being a slave. When Hebrews talks about the faithfulness of Joseph, it doesn't say, hey, and he by faith, Joseph resisted temptation with Potiphar's wife. Could have said that. It didn't mention him working in prison or interpreting the dreams or managing this entire global famine. It was his belief in the deliverance of God's people to the promised land that Hebrews recalls in the Faith Hall of Fame. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made, a, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. He could see hundreds of years by faith into the future that you guys are going to be slaves, but God's going to deliver you through Moses. Make sure you bring my bones out. He did all that by faith. Joseph is a true picture of Jesus Christ. Now, I realize we're going a little longer today because we had a lot of preliminary stuff, which was great, and I don't regret that. But so buckle up your seatbelts, okay? Hang on, I got a little bit more, okay? Just as we close up uh, Genesis, watch this. Joseph is just like Jesus in that he was a shepherd. He was loved by his father. 
He was sent to his brothers. He was hated by his brothers. He prophesied of his coming glory. He was rejected by his brothers. He endured unjust punishment for his, his brothers. He was sentenced to the pit. He was condemned to the pit through a leader who knew he should go free. He was sold for pieces of silver. He was handed over to Gentiles. He was regarded as dead, but raised from the pit. He went out of Egypt. He was made a servant. He was tempted severely and did not sin. They were both falsely accused. They both made no defense. Cast into prison, numbered with sinners and criminals. Jesus had one on either side. Endured unjust punishment from Gentiles. Associated with two criminals, one pardoned and one was not. That was pretty amazing. Both showed compassion in spite of all that life had dealt them. Brought a message of deliverance in prison. Wanted to be remembered. Shown to have divine wisdom. Recognized as having the spirit of God. Betrayed by their friends. Glorified after the humility. Honored among Gentiles while still being despised and forgotten by their brethren. Given a Gentile bride. Was 30 years old when they began their life's work. 31. Uh, blessed the world with bread became the only source of bread for the world. The world was instructed to go to him to do whatever he said to do. Was given the name God speaks and lives. His brethren were driven out of their own land. In his second appearance, he did not go to his brothers, but they came to him. That's yet to be fulfilled in prophecy. There was a significant time gap between his initial relationship with his brothers and his second relationship with his brothers. Jesus has been gone for 2,000 years. He gave his brothers a way of deliverance through substitution. His brothers went forth to proclaim his glory. That's us. He prepared a place for his brethren. Jesus says in John 14, I go to prepare a place, receive them. He brought both Jew and Gentile together. I won't read them all. <laughs> There's actually over 150 parallels between Joseph and Jesus. That is just a sample. Christ suffered like Joseph did. Or should I say, Joseph suffered like Christ did. Suffered for the sins of his the ones he calls brothers. The righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Have you been made alive in the Spirit? Have you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? The Bible says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll make him the boss of your life, the king of glory, the king of all that you are and all that you will be, and then you'll believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you, that you believe he died for you, that he was buried, and on the third day he literally rose again. If you will Put your faith in that. That's your hope of facing God. You will be what? Saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for the beautiful picture of Joseph. And that it points to a much, much, much more picture of Jesus. Beautiful picture. Father, help us to worship him every day of our lives. Help us to be more like him with your help of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need more information about how to trust Christ, please contact me. There's my cell phone number. I'd love to have a personal conversation with you, buy you lunch or coffee. Um, let's see. Amanda, would you come help me with a quick question and answer session? We're going to cut it short today because I'm long. Matt, is this microphone okay? And I think there's no button there. Okay, good. All right. Let's see if anybody has a question for us today. I think there's two there. And you can send questions anonymously. We don't usually read who sent the questions. You spoke about how it isn't good to lie. It may be okay to keep personal information to yourself when it comes to dealing with people you don't know. What should you do if it's your spouse and you are trying to prevent an issue? Wow, that's a tough one. Husbands, you know, do I, does this dress make me look bad? What do, we, what do you do? I don't know. I think in Second Opinions chapter 4, it says, Husband, thou shalt lie in that situation. I don't know. I don't know. There, there's times that, that we, you plead the fifth and you say, do you want me to be honest? I don't know. I, I, I mean, there is an exception to the lying. Anybody remember? Who, what's the exception? To save a life. To save a life. Rahab the harlot, um, the two uh, nursemaids in, under Pharaoh when he, they said, throw the babies in the river. They're like, man, these Egyptian women, these Israel women, they just have babies that pop out so fast. We get there and they've already done it. You know, so they lied there, but they were saving a life just like Christians in Nazi Germany lied about where the Jews were hidden. So um, I don't know that I'd have to know more details about this to say maybe there needs to be a hard conversation. I don't think 
you have to say everything. You say, hey, did you ever do that? You say, oh, you know, I don't like to talk about my past. You could say that. That's better than lying. So I'd have to know more details. Was there a follow-up to yes. that one? How would you respond to someone who is playing God that says, God instructed me to do this, like harming someone? For instance, they may say, God helped armies to win in battle. How can you be sure? How can you be sure when he's instructing you to do that? Right. That, that's where God's word is so important. Okay, so Peter said, we saw Jesus in his ascension, which was pretty amazing. Peter was so impressed, like, hey, we, let's build three tabernacles here. And Jesus was like, no, you're missing the point. And then Peter, when he was writing about that, when he was remembering that event decades earlier, he said, but I've got a more sure word of prophecy, talking about the scriptures. So you can say, well, God told me, God told me, but the Bible is more valuable than all that because anything you think God is telling you, you need to go to scriptures. Because if God told you to do this, but the Bible says this, guess what? You're eating too much pepperoni pizza before you go to bed if you've been dreaming dreams like that. Okay, there's something wrong there. Uh, I can't tell you how many times people come to me and say, God told me this, Pastor, and it didn't come true. When I coached high school football down Lake Jackson, I had parents come, this one set of parents came to me and complained, wanted to know why their son wasn't starting a running back. And they told me, God told me, Ricky's going to be playing in the NFL. Well, that was 10 years ago, and Ricky's not in the NFL. Okay? I had another lady come to me probably 16 years ago that God told me, you need to go get your prostate checked. I'm like, that's personal information there. And she said, she, you know, you, you're in trouble. And I went and got my prostate checked, no problem. I've gotten it rechecked, no problem. I'm like, I don't know which God is speaking to you, but it's not the right one. So I am really leery when people say, God told me, you, need, you have a Bible. And you probably haven't even read all of it. Why are you depending on all these voices? Okay, I'm not saying God can't or won't speak to you. But just like in the Bible, it's extremely rare. But you got 66 books full of instructions. I would spend a lot of time listening to that. Okay, um, I, I don't have a very strong opinion on that. But, yeah. I'm just laughing to myself because I'm wondering if you like accidentally cut off that lady in the parking lot. And she's like, oh, I have a word for you. Yeah. Like revenge, you know? I know. <laughs> But, but yeah, I'm just cautious. I won't say God doesn't know. I'm just saying when people always tell me, God told me, God told me. And like, there's a Bible verse that just contradicts what you just said. Do you not spend more time studying instead of listening to voices? Can you explain the difference between righteous anger, re justice, and vengeance? How do you know when you're feeling or pursuing the right one? Cool. Paul says in Ephesians, you know it, be angry and sin not. So you, it's, Anger is not a sin. The Bible says God is angry with the wicked every day. So God's not sinning, so therefore anger. And, and of course, Jesus was pretty ticked when he turned the tables in the temple. He did it at the beginning of the ministry and, the, and with the chiastic structure he did at the end of his ministry, showing that I'm going to start this way, purging out sin, I'm going to end this way, purging out sin. And he wasn't sinning by what he did. So you should be angry that your country's falling apart. You should be angry that, you know, a million babies are aborted every year. You should be angered by that. And that what, what you do with it determines whether it's sin or not. And so the Bible says, be angry and sin not. That doesn't mean do nothing. It just makes sure you act in a righteous way. Did I answer it? I mean, did I get all, okay. All right, we'll take one more and then we'll be done. Um, how can you know if you're really saved? Amen. Um, so I'll, give, I'll answer two ways. One, you should be able to look back to a time and place where you made a decision. If I asked you, are you married? Eugene, if I said, are you married, what would your answer be? And how do you know you're married, Eugene? You, sometimes I've seen you, uh, Amy. You don't always act like it. I'm not sure you're married, brother. Right? What, what would you say to me if I asked you that question? Right? I'd be like, if, if, did you get hit by a truck? I mean, it's like, you know it happened, okay? If you don't remember, I don't know if it was that significant. Now, I will make a, a caveat. Some people that grow up in church, and which is my kids, they get saved at five, six, seven. It's really hard to remember all the circumstances of that because that was just normal life. We went to church. We heard about Jesus. I trusted Jesus. We, it just, but you know, when you get saved at 24, when you were addicted to crack or whatever, it's real. It's more. It's more dramatic. So number one, you should be able to look back to a time and place that doesn't remember. No, do you remember the date? I had to go back and do some math to figure out I was saved in August. Uh, when I was nine years old. I don't remember the date. I do know where I was and what happened. Okay. Number two, there's looking back and there's looking at now. What am I trusting in? If you were to stand before God, which is the classic question, and say, 
God says, why should I let you in my heaven? If your answer is, I got baptized, eh, okay, well, I was a good person. No, okay. Your answer should be, Christ paid it all on the cross for me, and he forgave all my sins, and I stand before you in his righteousness, not my own. And that, that's how you know you're saved. If you, want, if you have more questions about that, again, there's my cell phone number. All right, let's stand. Longer than normal service, but a good service. Amen? Let's, let's read God's word together as this blessing over one another from Numbers chapter 6, verse 24. Join me. The Lord bless you and keep you, and the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.